Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. Remember, you can hear our entire back catalogue of episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and of course our SoundCloud. So please tell your colleagues and friends and hit that subscribe button. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome back to Two Peds in a Pod, the paediatric medical education podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be your host again. My name's Ian Lewins and I'm a children's emergency department consultant based at Derby. Um, and it's my very great pleasure to introduce today uh, Dr. Thomas Jackson, who's a paediatric registrar currently based at North Middlesex Hospital. Uh, good morning, Tom. How are you? Good morning. I'm very pleased to be on the show. I'm a big fan. Oh, well. Thank you. Um, and uh, I was delighted that you, you came on, um, but then my heart sank because what we're going to talk about is a drug that I can never pronounce. Um, so, so thanks for that. We're going to talk about a paper that you're the lead author for, uh, which was recently published in uh, the Archives of Disease in Childhood. And this is Dexmedetomidine Improved Success of Pediatric MRI Sedation. So I can say that drug. Um, <laughs> So before we start on this, just tell me a little bit about how did you sort of get involved in writing this paper? How did this come about? Uh, yeah, so I started at North Middlesex about a year and a half ago, and it's at a district general hospital in London, and the, um, they've been offering a, a sedation service. Um, they've not got any dedicated anaesthetists there. And so it's very much a nurse-led service where children are brought back for planned scans. Um, and if they need sedation, they've been following the NICE guidance. And so when I started, or, there'd already been some work that had been done in this area because the nurses had started to notice that the sedation success rate really wasn't very good when they were following the NICE guidance. And they were getting quite fed up of, of children coming for their scans, um, being inadequately sedated, and then having to come back again and it being unsuccessful on, on multiple occasions. And so they took it upon themselves to retrospectively audit the success rates that they were having. They went then to the consultants to um, argue for some, some change. They implemented an initial change that, that then wasn't that successful, it turned out. And then I then got involved subsequently by suggesting that we could use uh, intranasal dexmedetomidine as, as an alternative approach. And so that's sort of how I started to become involved. And then we've sort of continued to, to audit our success thereafter. Okay. Um, and is, is dexmedetomidine something that you'd sort of seen used before or used before? or? So I'd had some limited experience of using it in adult patients before I started my pediatric training, but I had become aware of its use in pediatrics when I was at Great Ormond Street. And though I hadn't used it myself, I'd sort of been aware that their guideline for um, anxious children prior to having painful procedures like cannulas was that you could consider using intranasal dexmedetomidine and thought, oh, is it also possible you could use it for um, painless procedures like MRIs and, and other scans that require children to stay still for a long period of time and um, found that that was the case and got in touch with the team at Great Ormond Street um, who had an established protocol for how to use it both intravenously and intranasally. Okay. Um, and I guess this, this is sort of something that will, will obviously resonate with a lot of people um, for, for sort of failed scans and the, the 
sort of disappointment for those doing the scans, but but more so for the the parents and and the families involved, uh, and the, that we locally have a GA service, but there's a huge weight on that. Um, so I guess it's even harder if you don't have that service to hand either. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, there's there's firstly a cost to the the family of having to come, and also it's not particularly pleasant if a child is waking up in in the scanner and be quite distressed. Um, there's then a time constraint for the family as well, having to take time off to be able to bring their their child to the to, to have a procedure done. And then there's a financial cost for the the trust as well. So as you say, we don't have a GA list. Um, and there are many district generals which are in the same position and so then have to send children to hospitals often slightly further away that can offer a, a general anaesthetic service. And um, there's literature out there that would say that it costs about twice as much to have a scan under general anaesthesia than it does under sedation. So if you can get sedation right, it's better for all involved. Absolutely. Um, and I, I guess just as a bit of background for those people, maybe not from a paediatric background listening, um, why do we need sedation for scans? Yeah, um, so not all scans are going to need sedation and not all um, children will need sedation for uh, any particular scan. But if you're thinking about, say, a MRI scan that typically can last between 15 to sort of 45 minutes and where you need to stay really still and is often very loud and noisy and quite sort of claustrophobic, that's the sort of thing that um, often relatively young children, sort of preschool children, are unlikely to be able to tolerate. It's hard enough to get a child to stay still for 10 minutes, let alone in a very enclosed space for, for sort of half an hour. And then there might be some other children that have social communication difficulties or learning difficulties who might also um, find it quite challenging to stay still for that length of time as well. And so what we would normally do is if we've got a planned scan is to ask our play specialists to um, assess in sort of the more borderline cases to whether they think that a child would be able to tolerate a scan unsedated. But um, there are some situations where that's not going to be the case. And then you will need to think about using a sedation approach. Okay, absolutely. So that's that's gives us a really useful background. Um, so you guys basically did sort of three separate audits, if if you like. Um, and the first one, and you divided those into epochs. And I like I like the word epoch. I'm going to use that more. Um, so the first epoch, the first sort of retrospective one, is following. Nice guidance, which is if you're under 15 kilos, um, you get chloral hydrate, and if you're over 15 kilos, you get midazolam. Um, and what did you guys find following the nice guidance? How successful were these? Yeah, so um, this was an 11 month period that was retrospectively audited, and there were 33 scans um, done in that time period. So um, you're looking at roughly one every one to two weeks. And the overall success rate was in that time period was 52%. So about half of the children were successfully sedated and the half were failed. But importantly, when we looked at the success for midazolam, so that's in the children that are over 15 kilos, the success rate there was 33%. So there were, there were 12 children who had, or 12 attempts rather, of scans, of which only four of them were successful. And that was the thing that made the nurses really quite frustrated and said, there must be something better. And that then led on to the second epoch where 
instead of using midazolam for the the over 15 kilo children, it was recommended by the consultants to use chloral for everybody. Okay. So th- there's a clear sort of identification of we, we've, we, this is not working. And I think, you know, we're not talking about thousands of patients, but you, I guess you don't need thousands and thousands of patients to go, hang on, if our success rate is down in the 30%, we can surely do better here. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things when I started to become involved with this project, I did look at the wider literature for success rates for midazolam, and we're certainly not the only one to experience this. So there was a group in Coventry who presented at the RCPCH conference in 2015 with an 18% success rate of midazolam. Um, And there had been a systematic review as well by Helen Sammons and others in 2013, again, suggesting that especially for longer and more noisy success, scans like MRIs that midazolam wasn't particularly effective. Okay so we've identified a problem we then move on to your second epoch which as you say is chloral only for everybody and it's same dose as per the NICE guidance up to a maximum dose of a gram Um, and and what did you find in that epoch? So um Really, there wasn't any significant improvement overall, if I'm honest. So this is over an eight-month period, 20 scans, and the success rate is is still 55%. Um, So I think that was the sort of the disappointment for the nurses at the time, that they still weren't managing to crack um, sedation, at least in North Middlesex. Yeah. So a bit better than midazolam alone, or a bit better than midazolam, but still half of them aren't working essentially yeah and um we we didn't look for anything in terms of statistical significance here but the um the slightly heavier children um just sort of anecdotally tend not to respond quite so well um to chloral we've not had large enough numbers to be able to really test that hypothesis um but yes it's sort of still pretty clear that there was significant improvement that needed to be made Okay, which leads us on to the third epoch, um, and this is where we start to introduce uh, the dexmedetomidine. And and how did you incorporate that? What what sort of um, therapeutic regime did you have for those children? Yeah, so there are two approaches that we're using here. So firstly, as a monotherapy to replace midazolam, so in the children that are over 15 kilos, um, administering it intranasally, uh, at four micrograms per kilo, um, which is the dose that was being used at Great Ormond Street. There are other protocols that use slightly lower doses, but we thought we really wanted to go at a dose that, that had been used elsewhere. And we thought higher the better, so long as it was safe. So we went for four micrograms per kilo. Yep. And then for um, children who are under 15 kilos, there was the option to use it as a top-up Um, medication so where chloral hadn't been successful in the same episode so rather than bring them back for another scan just waiting outside the the scan department giving them a a top-up dose of dexmedetomidine intranasally at two micrograms per kilo so a lower dose as a top-up and see if that would then um, help for success and then finally, if children had failed chloral on another occasion, they could be brought back for a planned um, reattendance using dexmedetomidine alone, and to see if that had been if that would improve the success for that particular child. Okay. So, so that's sort of different approaches that we were using using there. 
Okay. And, um, well, let's let's move on. What did you find? What was your success rate? Because that's what people want to know, isn't it? Absolutely. So the, the first thing is that our overall success rate was 81% um, in that time period. So there was, it was a seven-month period. We had 32 scans that were performed and an 81% success rate overall. Though there were a few cases where our sort of protocol hadn't been followed sort of correctly. And if we just looked on a per protocol basis, the success rate was up 85%. So sort of significantly better than what we'd seen when we were using the NICE, NICE guidance. Okay. So that's a lot better, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that sort of was then really useful for us is that when we directly compared the dexmedetomidine monotherapy and midazolam, um, again, we're seeing a significant improvement. So if you remember, midazolam had a 33% success rate with the dexmedetomidine or up at 76. So more than doubling our success rate for basically the same indication. And whilst this is not a sort of randomized controlled trial, we're not able to control for everything. The, you're looking at sort of the same indication in broadly the same population over a similar-ish time point. So from an observational study point of view, it's sort of still relatively strong evidence that you've got an improvement using Dexmed versus midazolam. Excellent. Um, and in terms of the, the administration uh, of, of the dexmedetomidine, um, intranasal, how, how sort of what was the feedback that you were getting of, of how well children were tolerating that compared to oral medication? Yeah, so this isn't something that we systematically looked at, um, mm. but certainly speaking to the, the nurses who've had many years of experience um, having to deliver meds to sometimes quite uncooperative children, they did find that it was much easier to be able to use um, an intranasal medication. So for those who aren't aware, um, chlorohydrate, which is the other drug that we've been talking a little bit about, is an oral medicine that is actually quite unpalatable. It's got a really nasty, bitter taste. And if you're having to, you're often having to deliver sort of five to 10, sometimes even 20 mils of this medicine to children, um, some of whom who might have sensory and processing issues as, as well, and are very likely to spit it out. Whereas with an intranasal medicine, you have a special attachment that you put onto a one mil syringe. You just make sure that you're able to put that into the nostrils and then give a squeeze. Um, and so even with a child that is sort of quite agitated, you're often able to administer the medication. Um, and dexmedetomidine, unlike intranasal midazolam, um, isn't in any way painful. So there are some drugs which if you deliver intranasally, are they sting. Dexmedetomidine isn't one of them. And it doesn't smell or taste of anything. At least that's what I'm told. Not tried it myself. Okay. Um, so something that seems to be well tolerated, that the suggestion from your paper is that is significantly more effective than the previous protocols that we've used. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what we then wanted to do is to confirm that this wasn't just sort of a one-off and something we haven't yet published is we've continued to audit um, at, and actually our success rates have, have remained um, as high as they were in, in that first, in that third epoch. So still sort of in, in the 80%. Excellent. Um, and then just sort of thinking about other confounders, I presume that the, the scans that you're comparing in Epoch 1, 2, and 3 are similar scans. And I'm, th I'm thinking these are largely going to be sort of MRI brains, MRI spines, those sorts of things. Yeah, so they're almost exclusively um, MRI heads. Um, over 95% of these scans are um, MRI heads. 
um, the the weights of the children and the ages of the children in the different epochs are are similar. They're not statistically different. The one thing that we didn't really collect was on other potential confounders in terms of other underlying um, diagnoses. But broadly speaking, um, it's the same sort of cohort of children. Okay, and, and that, so that makes it sort of useful to compare. Mm. Um, and dexmedetomidine is not without side effects what sort of did you encounter any issues with with delivering this medication during your your study yeah no absolutely so it's a a alpha 2 agonist so it does have significant effects on the cardiovascular system and this is something that has been sort of well documented already in in the literature. So the, the paper that I was sort of most heavily reliant on here is one where they looked at over three thousand cases of using dexmedetomidine for EEG scans in children, and. Um, what they had previously shown is that it's often associated with reductions in heart rate um, and sometimes in blood pressure as well, but it rarely required any interventions. And, and the incidence of significant sort of respiratory compromise is much, much lower than you'd ex- that you'd have in other drugs. And so what we did is we sort of, because this was a new um, drug in terms of uh, the pediatric formulary in North Middlesex, mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that we were very careful and prospectively auditing for any adverse events and so whilst we were doing this, we ad- uh, adapted the sedation protocol to make sure we were more carefully monitoring heart rate and blood pressure throughout the scans. And what we found is that in our group of patients, um, about 70% had a drop in heart rate that was below the APLS normal range. Um, but of those, it was only 12% that had a drop that was more than 20% below that lower limit of normal, which is typically used in the literature as a sign of sort of more severe bradycardia. Mm. And in all cases where there were sort of abnormal observations, it was advised that a doctor would then review the patients because normally it was the nurses that were escorting to MRI for the scans and it was all nurse-led and nurse-monitored. Um, and there were cases where the doctors were called and in none of those cases were any interventions actually required. And I guess the, the caveat as well with, with bradycardia is that when you sleep, your heart rate goes down anyway and APLS normal ranges are based on an awake child. So really it's sort of not surprising that when you're um, asleep, um, your heart rate will go down a little bit. But then on top of that, Dexmed does reduce your heart rate a little bit beyond, beyond what would be normal for just a sleeping child. Okay. Um, So, yes, a bit of additional monitoring needed, which I guess is the payoff versus the increased success rate. But in none of the patients that you're talking about, did any of them require intervention, anaesthetic support, anything like that? Not at all. So, I mean, the the real question in in terms of the hemodynamic changes is, for us is, is there any evidence of um, impaired perfusion? And there wasn't in any of the children that were reviewed. So no child had sort of prolonged cap re- refill time. No child needed a, a fluid bolus. Um, you just waited for the drug to wear off and then the heart rate improved back to normal. Okay. Um, I guess the other, the other sort of question we talked about a little bit about confounders was um, were there any differences in sort of non-therapeutic input into these three epochs? And, and the, the thing that you've mentioned previously was sort of play specialists. Were there any change in sort of play specialist support or, or any other thing, anything else non-therapeutic? 
so no change in terms of our, our play as play fashion support the only difference um in epoch 3 so that was the one we were also using dexmedetomidine was that where possible you were trying to source earplugs as well um so it is possible that the earplugs are also helping out but i must say that they're not not the greatest of earplugs having tried them out myself um so uh, that was the only other intervention that we did differently otherwise the scan department was in the same place you had to go up up um up in the lift um which is another slight yeah. issue that children were sometimes waking up on transfer but um no otherwise there weren't any changes in terms of the interventions that we were doing okay um and, and the final bit of the paper that i thought was 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 really interesting was um looking at those children and the outcomes for children who needed multiple attempts at sedation so children who've had a failed attempt and then come back what what sort of things did you find yeah so there's a limited number here there was there was 10 children that this applied to but what we were finding is that if a child had failed using one pharmacological method on one day they almost were always never successful um, using the same approach on a second day so if they'd had chloral on one time chloral monotherapy one time and then you tried another day with with chloral they often were unsuccessful on that time as well similarly with midazolam whereas if you changed your approach then um you you were going to increase your chances of success so and that actually also applied for dexmed so there were some children that would fail dexmedetomidine on two occasions uh, failed on on a first occasion trying it again wasn't often successful and actually using a combinatorial approach of chloral and dexmed was successful so really the message is that if you have a child that fails one particular method um, pharmacological method on one occasion trying it again just on a different day is probably not likely to be successful it, it can be but we've got some some data some some data subsequently that we have been successful in a few cases but by and large if you if, if approach a doesn't work on on the on your first day you need to try an approach b on your second day which kind of makes sense really doesn't yeah. it yeah um so on the back of this then um sort of very encouraging results that you'd got has the local sedation for scan guideline changed now yeah so the the guideline had been approved from the medical point of view at the time we started using it in the third epoch, um, but it was only then approved from the from the pharmacy um, after we had got these encouraging results, and it's now been um, fully approved. There have been other hospitals in the local area as well that are now starting to show some interest, and so we can share that degree of expertise that we have operating from a non-tertiary hospital because i think there was always some anxiety about using um what i felt to be slightly more novel drugs where you don't have anesthetic support but actually even though it's a difficult to pronounce drug that might not be that familiar to um, the pediatric audience it's been used um uh, successfully for at least one to two decades internationally it's just that in the uk perhaps it's something that we aren't using as much as as we could do and and you you mentioned that the sort of um ongoing data collection what 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 are you looking at currently or in the future so it's more that we're just continuing to make sure that success is is what we expect it to be we we don't see any benefit really in looking um systematically at the side effect profile because other 
other larger studies have already done that. And we do have the sort of incident reporting system, the Datex reporting system, to be able to pick up if there are any problems there. But it was just making sure that there were any uh, the improvement was sustained, which it has been. The really interesting bit we have found is that the use of DexMed as a um, top-up dose with the, ch- the children that are receiving chloral has actually increased in 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 the more recent uh, audit that we have done. And we don't know if that's because these are children that otherwise are just not as responsive to chloral hydrate, or is it actually that there's just a bit more confidence and familiarity mm. with using this drug now? And so therefore nurses are less prepared to try to sort of um, wait it out in the scan and go, actually, no, this child is inadequately sedated. Let's top them up now that we know that there's something we can safely use. And so therefore are making use of Dexmed as a intranasal, uh, as a, a sedation top up for those that are having chloral. Okay, brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed the paper, actually. I think that's that it, it sort of directly tackled something that, that I think lots of our listeners will have experienced. Um, on a separate note, how did you sort of find the process of writing this up and getting this published? Was it sort of relatively straightforward and something you'd encourage or was it a complete pain so firstly we'd definitely encourage it and i think anyone that's thinking about any service improvements um always have half an eye on actually is this something that you could share as a a short report or a poster or so on the thing that surprised me a little bit was uh, how long it taken to go through the peer review process is certainly not the first time I've been submitting manuscripts, but it did take a little bit longer than I might have expected. And I think that was partly due to the challenges of finding a, re- a reviewer in what is a relatively specialist area. Mm. Um, and so that was the only sort of real challenge that we had was a slightly long time sitting in peer review. Fair enough. Um, uh, and as somebody who's done peer review, I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> But thank you. I, I really enjoyed that. I think it's a really interesting paper and, and something that we will certainly sort of have a think about locally. And I'm sure lots of people listening to this, it will definitely ring a bell with them and go, huh, I wonder if we should introduce this. So, Tom, I really appreciate your, your time coming on and, and talking through this paper. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and very happy to discuss um, dexmedetomidine with anybody that's interested. I've now become a very much dexmedetomidine evangelist. Excellent. And you, your contact is in the paper, which is in archives in, I think, February of this year. That's right. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for taking the time to download our podcast this week. If you enjoy our podcasts, please tell your friends and colleagues and subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, our SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.